welcome to the Model Railway Show. I'm your host, Trevor Marshall. And I'm your other host, Jim Martin. This episode is all about track, building and detailing track, and keeping track. Right, Jim. In just a moment, I'll be chatting with my guest, Mike Kogel, about building model track work that complements the fidelity to prototype of the new generation of locomotives and rolling stock now available to us all. And Dick Carnes, a very talented and well-known S-scale modeler who himself has written articles on realistically detailed track, will talk to me about the importance of keeping track of all of your model railroad acquisitions, making a list to help your survivors after you're gone. And by gone, we don't mean to the hobby shop. More on that later in the show. But first, here's Trevor. The hobby of model railroading has come a long way from the days when a boxcar was a boxcar was a boxcar. Today, those who wish to celebrate the uniqueness of freight cars can join like-minded individuals at dozens of prototype modelers meets across North America. The same evolution has occurred in many facets of the hobby, from layout design to structure and scenery modeling to operations. We've become more sophisticated as hobbyists, and for more and more of us, the details matter. But my guest today argues that there's one key aspect of the hobby that is not kept pace. When it comes to track work, most hobbyists rely on ready-to-run turnouts and flex track that is pretty much unchanged from train set days. And those who hand lay are creating track work that even an old-timer from the days of cardboard car sides and escussion pin rivets would recognize. Mike Kogel has written a new book to help modelers consider whether building ultra-realistic track work is an objective that they want to pursue. It's called Detailing Track, and we'll have a link to information about the book on our website, themodelrailwayshow.com. Mike is a trained artist and the editor of O-Scale Trains magazine. At home, he models an Ohio short line in Proto 48. But while the examples in his book are in O-Scale or Proto 48, the detail parts for track are available in a variety of scales, including HO. And the techniques that he describes are almost universal. Welcome to the Model Railway Show, Mike. Thank you, Trevor. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, what do you find fascinating about prototype track, so, so much so that you actually want to model it as realistically as possible? Well, it would have to be the visual texture of it all. I grew up across the street from a couple of really decrepit sightings that served the uh, town that I lived in. And as a kid, I spent hours walking up and down these tracks. Uh, it was a different world back then, obviously. But if you're familiar with my writing, then you know that I love this kind of track, um, and I've spent the majority of my time in the hobby trying to model these qualities of light rail, really decrepit ties, and weedy overgrown ballast. Why do you think our demands for realistic track have not kept pace with things like freight car detailing and prototypical operations, stuff like that? Well, I think most of us are drawn to certain things in the hobby, and for the majority, I suppose the trains themselves are the biggest attraction. The desire we all have to get something running as soon as possible when we're starting a new layout is probably another reason. Uh, it might also be the sheer volume of track that can go into a basement size layout when you stop to think about it. Uh, even a small layout like mine has quite a bit of track when you add it up in lineal feet. And then, of course, there's time. That's probably the major factor for most people. We're really all too busy with many things to do. And when you model track to the level that I've done, it's very time consuming and it represents a major undertaking. Now, and that's one of the things that you stress in the book, Detailing Track. You 
you say that building ultra-realistic track work like this is not for everybody. It does take time and commitment. But I think personally, your results are just simply stunning. And I have a hard time when I look at some of those pictures of telling the model photos from the real ones. Uh, What type of modeler do you think is going to embrace this approach? Well, I think uh, someone who deeply cares about and loves modeling the total scene. When I switched scales from HO, I wanted to focus on those modeling elements that I really enjoy and would get excited about, one of them being track. Uh, I had done the fill the whole basement with layout routine, and honestly, that just doesn't hold any interest for me whatsoever anymore. With the new layout, I really wanted to do much higher quality of modeling and emphasize that over quantity of layout. And really, that's what I've done with P48 and the INW. That's the Indiana and Whitewater, right? Correct. I guess then uh, someone who is interested in modeling the whole scene, and as I said in the intro, that we've come so far in terms of things like modeling realistic scenes and doing realistic structures and rolling stock that for you, doing the track is just sort of that last piece of the puzzle to tie it all together. Uh, yeah, I would say so. In, in a lot of ways, it was the most enjoyable part. I really don't consider myself to be a rolling stock modeler like a lot of guys do in P48. I enjoy the more artistic aspects such as weathering and scenery and building and and those types of things. So, you know, the track was really the central focus of the layout for me. I finally, after 30 years, was able to achieve the quality of track work that I'd been striving for for all that time. Now, you mentioned enjoyment, and that brings up an interesting point. Some people might argue that with all the detail castings that are required to build this type of track, it's going to be more expensive than doing even traditional hand-laid, which is one of the reasons why people do hand-laid is uh, because they say it's cheaper than using flex and stuff. But it seems to me that since it's also going to take more time to create these highly detailed pieces of track work, that it's actually a good way to reduce one's hobby costs. If it takes longer to build the track with all those detail castings and put in the uh, tie plates and things like that, then you're actually getting more construction time out of every dollar you spend on the hobby. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I certainly agree. You know, there was a time in the hobby when the emphasis was on doing things or building models and learning skills and developing craftsmanship for the sheer enjoyment that the process itself brought. I spent over two years working part-time to lay my track. I did one half of the layout first and built the track, did the troubleshooting, wired it up, and then went back and placed all the the spikes in every tie, all the details, the tie plates, joint bars, etc. And uh, during this time, I was saving up, you know, so I could purchase the materials to do the other half of the layout. Doing it this way allowed me to really take my time enjoy the process. I could enjoy, you know, running on the track that I did have. And it also allowed me to keep my motivation level up and to keep the overall quality of the track consistent without getting burned out, which is a very real possibility when you're doing work to the degree that I did. Absolutely. And I was going to say some people may be a little hesitant about planning a whole layout that relies on techniques with which they're not familiar, like using tie plates 
habits and many of the other techniques that you discuss in the book. What sort of advice do you have for people to help them overcome that reluctance and get started on it? I would say never be afraid to try something new and to approach it with an attitude of, I'm just going to have fun and play around with this. Uh, When I'm looking for a new technique or trying to learn a new technique, I just take a bunch of scrap material and do a lot of mock-ups. I do a little short section, maybe a foot long or two feet or whatever, and just experiment around with the different techniques for texturing the ties, uh, weathering the ties, you know, the the painting and weathering and so forth. And and doing mock-ups in this way gets you over that inhibition that it has to be perfect. You know, it's going to go on the layout, so it's going to be permanent and everything has to be just so. And of course, it's not going to be. When you're doing a mock-up and you're using scrap material or, or whatever, you know, all that just goes away. You can just have fun with it and feel free to ask yourself, well, what would happen if I tried this or if I combine this technique with that technique and et cetera and so forth. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't work, well, then you're, you're not out a lot of time. You're not out a lot of material. And so nothing much has been lost. And the I guess thing, also you've, you've actually learned something in the process. So in fact, yeah. even though maybe a little bit of material like ties are lost, your experience has gained. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing is that uh, as my memory gets a little less reliable with the years, I also keep lots of notes on the process so that when I do come across something that works and I want to duplicate it, I don't have to go back and reinvent the wheel. Now, you mentioned quite regularly throughout the book that the realistic track that you're building is not the route that everybody is going to want to take. However, there must be lots of information in the book that people who are even happy with flex track or are happy with a traditional way of handling track are going to find valuable. What sort of things are they going to find if they pick up a copy of detailing track? Well, there's actually a lot in there that you can apply to commercial track. The principles I outline in the first chapter of line, uh, that is a uh, track has a nice flowing quality to it. Color and of course texture are the other two elements that we look at. Uh, these apply equally to commercial track as much as they do hand laid. You know, I would say the book emphasizes quite thoroughly the need to go out and look at the prototype and then observe what's going on out there and then coming back to your basement or or whatever and then modeling what you've seen. You know, there's an entire chapter written by Joe Giannavario where he took an Atlas O number five commercial turnout, added a lot of details that were both commercial and some scratch built and really improved the appearance of it dramatically. For those who want to use commercial track for the the ease of it and speed and whatnot. There's a lot in there for you, too. Now, this is the second in a series. The first one was your book, Pieces of the Puzzle, in which you shared some of your experiences in deciding to adopt a fine-scale approach for your layout and pursue things like super realistic, detailed track. Can you give listeners a hint of what's in store for us in book number three? I sure can, Trevor. The working title is called Landscape Modeling, and it focuses on scenery. And I take much the same approach that I did with detailing track in that I'm going to focus the text more on learning how to go out and see the landscape 
what is actually out there rather than what we all have as preconceived idea of what's out there. And we will focus on, you know, some techniques, but it's not the usual things that have been covered to death by other publishers and publications. I'm just really beginning to put this work together, so it's going to be quite a long time before it's ready to go. Well, that gives us something to look forward to, doesn't it? Well, thank you. I hope so. (laughs) Mike, thanks for joining us on the Model Railway Show today. Much appreciated. very welcome, Trevor. It's been a pleasure. Mike Kogel is the editor of O-Scale Trains magazine and the author of Detailing Track. Just a reminder that we'll include a link to Mike's book on Detailing Track on our website at themodelrailwayshow.com. You know, Trevor, Mike makes a good point about studying real track work. I mean, what else can we do when we're trackside with our cameras waiting for the next train? I've spent a lot of time looking at real track because with my rail fanning luck, the trains rarely roll past on it. I know what you mean, and that's a good point. Just keep well back from the track while studying it, Jim. You don't want to trespass, and you want to stay alert around trains. We don't want you to have to put our next guest's idea to good use before your time. There's an elephant in the room that most modelers don't want to discuss, let alone do anything about. But discuss it we shall. Jim and his guests take a serious look at how we should plan for our inevitable exit from the hobby. There's a popular saying among the acquisitive, and it's obviously a guy thing, he who dies with the most toys wins. Well, putting that into a model railroad context, he who dies with the biggest layout, the most brass, or the most unassembled kits wins. Well then, who are the big losers after the winner heads to that roundhouse in the sky? In many cases, it's the surviving family and friends, possibly non-model railroaders, who are left with the overwhelming problem of how to dispose of a life of train building and hoarding. How do you put a dollar value on that stuff? Who will buy it? How do you let them know it's for sale? Should the family take on the task or someone else? The National Association of S-Gagers has considered all of this and come up with a very useful publication for its members. It's called the Estate Disposition Kit, Support Program for Survivors of Deceased NASG Members, an eight-page booklet that also comes with a six-page package of forms entitled the Estate Survival Kit. With us now is one of the people instrumental in making this kit available, well-known S-Scaler Dick Carnes. Welcome to the show, Dick. Thank you. Now, I guess before we roll too far into this, in a state terms disposition means getting rid of your stuff. Would that be correct? Exactly. And of course, it's never the model railroader himself who's stuck with that task. Do model railroaders put it off because it's a big job, or do they just not think of it in the first place? I think it's more complicated than that. Uh, I think they put it off because they don't believe that Well, let's put it this way. They think they're going to get back to it. One of the last things that comforts uh, people uh, in their waiting days, I believe, is uh, the uh, the wish to get back to things the way they used to be and what's the most fun for them. So what's the most fun for them is the thing they want to dispose of last. They don't want to let go. Good point. And I suppose doing this uh, speaks to their own mortality, does it? Oh, of course. Nobody likes to face that. I'd like to uh, mention a quote at the front of the estate disposition booklet, it goes as follows. Every NASG member has an obligation to develop and save in an obvious place sufficient information to relieve his survivor of significant disposition effort and to update it at least yearly. Bereavement is more than enough to cope with without having to worry about, of all things, a hobby. I think that's very well uh, put, and, and yet I'll guess most of us never think to do this in our lifetimes, do we? We've, we've spoken of this, but we should think of this as a gift 
that we leave our survivors. What you say is, is true. I'm, I'm not sure how to respond to that. Let me say that uh, this whole thing was my wife's idea. She said to me, what am I supposed to do with all this stuff if I outlive you? And I, I have to confess I, I had no answer. So I, I began to discuss it with John Foley, who was then the NASG's executive vice president. And I asked him to bring it before the NASG board of trustees and do something about it. And in the meantime, I had uh, put his name, address, and phone number in a prominent place in the house here so my wife could find it. But of course, nothing ever happened. So I, you know, the seed had been planted in my mind because uh, my my wife uh, is, is kind of important to me, and I don't want to leave her with, with a bunch of crap to do after, uh, after I'm gone. So uh, one of the things I did uh, when I uh, was elected executive vice president to succeed fully was to uh, lobby the board of trustees to uh, do something about this. And, of course, they were quite willing as long as I did it. Much of what's in this package is uh, my wife's ideas, and I'm really thankful for that. And I guess your efforts after your wife uh, gave you this idea, I I think a lot of the tips probably came out of your own uh, experience in in doing it for yourself first. No. The inventory, of course, did. I do keep an inventory, always have, because I find that convenient, and it's uh, very useful for setting up waybills for operating sessions as well. But that's, that's beside the point. That's not what we're talking talking about here, I just found that I had a leg up, and uh, one of the things she made me do was to put a copy of this in our will folder in our file cabinet, and that started the whole thing off. I began to think of, uh, you know, what should be the contents of such a program, and how could it best help the survivors, and at every step of the way, I had her look over my notes and proofread what I did, and make sure that it made sense. We've uh, spoken about uh, taking inventory, that's the very first thing you have to do, and then you have to evaluate it. I found the tips in the book for how to evaluate models was also very useful. Once you've done that, I guess the next step is to instruct your survivors on how to dispose of the goods. What options can they consider? Well, there are a variety of options. You can have, uh, if you're a member of a club, maybe your club members can help out. eBay is a way to get rid of things uh, quite handily. Local train shows or a national convention. Some uh, method uh, whereby uh, people can see what they're getting. That's really important because if they can't see it, they probably won't want it. Among the realistic advice in the uh, package is is the understanding that some of us just won't get around to doing this. It will be up to the survivors. So the package speaks to them, too, uh, about how to crack this nut, right? Yeah, sadly, I think most uh, modelers will not get around to doing an inventory. The modelers' uh, surviving friends, who are also hobbyists, are probably best equipped to do this. I was surprised, Dick, to find that the NASG appears to be the only model rail organization that uh, I know of, anyway, offering such a package. I figured, oh, you know, they've picked up on something the NMRA did. I went to the NMRA website, and as near as I can determine, they don't have this. I I think this is pretty impressive for a minority scale, I guess. I guess I don't know what to say to that. The NMRA has uh, perhaps 100 times as many members as the NASG, and uh, I I have no idea why they haven't thought of it. I I don't know firsthand that they haven't, but, you know, I I accept what you tell me. Yeah, well, I've talked to a few NMRA officers. Uh, They don't seem to know of any such thing, and yet the NMRA has insurance. I guess it's something that uh, they will pick up at, at some point. In the meantime, Dick, is there a way, uh, I'm an S-scaler, by the way, which is why I know about this. Is there a way anyone outside of S-scale can acquire this package? I have looked through the materials, and the materials say that these forms are on the NASG website, which is available to anyone. It's www.nasg.org. However, going to the website, I don't find them. So uh, I have a request in to the uh, NASG webmaster to put 
put them there according to what the book says. So we'll just advise our listeners if they don't find it right away, keep looking. Right. And in the meantime, the administrator for the program is the Eastern Vice President, and that's Monty Heppy, his address and contact information are in every issue of the NASG dispatch. Also, uh, every uh, new NASG member gets uh, a packet, a survival kit, uh, and the, uh, the booklet. Dick Carnes, not a nice thing to have to talk about, but certainly a necessary topic as the median age of our hobby grows older. Thanks for being with us today on the Model Railway Show. I'm uh, happy to do it, Jim. Uh, I hope this has been useful. Dick has some good advice for us all, Jim, but I wonder how many of us want our spouses to see in advance just how much we've got tied up in the hobby. We couldn't end up crossing the river stick sooner than anticipated. Good point. If they don't kill us, they might at least reduce us to kit form. But seriously, folks, make the list. Hide it if you must, but hide it where it can be found. Consider it a final gift to your loved ones. By the way, if any other model rail organizations out there have their own estate disposition kits they'd like us to know about, please contact us and we'll pass the information on. As always, we remind you to check out the links associated with these interviews on the Model Railway Show website, themodelrailwayshow.com. Well, our time's just about up. For the show, that is. What are we doing next time, Jim? Next time around, our guests will be Richard Hendrickson, noted model freight car guru, and Morgan Turney, the man who had the audacity to start up Canadian Railway Modeler magazine in the depths of a recession and succeed. We hope you're enjoying our twice-a-month shows. Feel free to share your opinions with us. I'm here to receive the compliments. The complaints go to Jim. Our thanks to you for joining us and to technical director Chris Abbott, Dave Woodhead for the original music, and Otto Bondrack for our great-looking website. For Jim Martin, I'm Trevor Marshall. So long. So long.